priests went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pam. Since Easter, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, uh, the shortest of the Gospels that begin the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've been following Jesus as he begins his ministry. He was baptized by John the Baptist, went out into the desert, was tempted, began in the north of Israel to gather his disciples, starting with four fishermen. He's been revealed as a powerful teacher with amazing authority. And last week we saw how Jesus began to unpack who he is, the Son of Man, linking himself to the prophecies in the Old Testament, but also be filling out the meaning of those prophecies. Now he begins again to expand God's kingdom and the definition of God's kingdom and to expand the circle of disciples. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. If you recall, Jesus is in the north of Israel, the Sea of Galilee, or the northern shore there, uh, Capernaum. And that's where uh, it seems that um, Peter, uh, the one whose testimony the um, gospel is based on, the gospel of Mark, that's where Peter seems to have had a family home, and it was some kind of base. Uh, Jesus returns again and again to Capernaum and then goes out teaching and these kind of uh, ever-growing circles of teaching and preaching and healing. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. So he's on the shore of Capernaum. And if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, it's a big sea. You can't see the other side apart from the mountains. And um, there were many different groups, nations, uh, villages uh, around that sea. And so the sea was a natural place of trade. And what do you do when there's trade? You tax it. 
And so the Romans put tax booths on the piers of these little villages and towns so that trade, fish, and anything that was being transported in by water, which is the best way to transport goods, could be seen and could be taxed. So there would have been a little booth there on the pier so that everything that was unloaded came past here. And there was Levi, a tax collector. Now what you should know about tax collectors back in that time was that it was a business. Jewish uh, members of uh, the nation of Israel, Jews, bid on the right to tax. And they bid a fixed amount so that they would give the Roman authorities a fixed amount of money and they would collect that money and then any additional money they could wring out of the local inhabitants. And so tax collectors were working with the oppressor, with the Roman authorities and the powers that were oppressing Israel. And the fellow countrymen did not like them. After all, who likes a tax man? But particularly in that place, because they had the authority to squeeze money, as much money as they could out of the population, they were despised. They were considered traitors, outcasts. They were forbidden to be witnesses in court or judges. They weren't considered part of God's people. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. They were listed, if they were listed at all, in town records with murderers and robbers. To be a tax collector meant to be, in the Jewish mind, a criminal, an outcast, oppressing God's people all after money. And so here is Jesus, the Messiah, returning to Israel, to God's people, and of all people, he would choose these outcasts, one of these outcasts, Levi. So far, he's only called fishermen, good, honest, hardworking Israeli fishermen. But now, he's beginning to expand the notion of who is part of the kingdom. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. By the way, this is the first time we see the word disciples used. So this group that are now following Jesus, they're beginning to differentiate themselves from just the crowds that see him wherever he is. And this word here, tax collectors and sinners, we know the tax collectors were considered bad, but sinners is a technical term. It, de it defines a group of people in Israel. Literally, it means the people of the land, what, we, what Christians uh, used to call pagans, you know, people who lived outside the cities. And they're basically people who could not be bothered with all the rules of Israel. They had a life to get on with. They had families and children to raise. They had crops to bring in. They did not have the time or the energy or the inclination to obey all the minute rules that the Pharisees had come up with as a way of regulating daily life. And so while they were still part of Israel, they were sort of on the periphery. Unclean, sinners, unholy, disreputable. These would have been the bad boys. And so you have this sense of outrage in the Pharisees. Israel was defined by the law. First, the Ten Commandments, the moral law that were given to Moses and the, uh, the stone tablets on Mount Sinai, which gave the rules 
for living in relationship with God and living in relationship with each other. You don't want to kill people if you're going to live with them. You don't want to steal each other's wives or property, commit adultery. You don't want to do all these things if you want to have a harmonious city, a harmonious community. But the Pharisees had gone further. So that was the defining law of Israel. It's what turned Israel from a group of slaves into a holy nation. The Pharisees had come up with 613 additional laws. That is, by scouring the Old Testament, they came up with rules and regulations, 613 of them, and they tried to live by every single one of them all the time, a full-time job. But they went further. There's a document called the Midrash. This was a collection of commentaries and sermons on the Old Testament, interpreting the law, and adding fresh layers of regulations and divisions and um, complications to the law. The Pharisees tried to live by all of those as well. By the way, the Midrash is still being written. To this day, the Midrash continues to, to grow and extend. So basically, this, the, the tax collectors said, I don't care about Israel. I'm going to work with the, the power system, the, the um, Romans. And the sinners were people who just threw up their hands and said, this is all too complicated. I'm not going to bother. And that outraged the Pharisees. When the, the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? From their perspective, their life, governed by these rules and regulations, was all about remaining holy, clean, ceremonially clean. That is, set apart for God's purpose, distinct from people who don't follow God. And to associate with unclean, unholy people was a way of becoming yourself unclean, unholy. If you want to be a good kid, you don't associate yourself with the bad kids. You stay on the straight and narrow, you follow the rules, you live a life defined by God's law, and therefore God will love you. You're a holy person. People who don't follow God's law clearly do not love God, and he will not love them in return. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What is Jesus doing here? He's blowing out the walls of the community of God's people. He is redefining who's in and who's out. He is saying to the Pharisees, your definition of who is holy and in relationship with God is outdated because I'm here. And I now am going to decide who's in and who's out. See, the law was created and Israel was created. We talked about, I talked about this last week. So that there would be a community of people who would understand who Jesus is who would understand the concepts of clean and unclean, of sacrifice, of sin, of repentance, who would know what it means to call God holy, 
what it know what it means to be unholy and lost and outside of a relationship with God. That was Israel's purpose. But instead of using its relationship with God and its distinctiveness as a way to witness and show the world who God is, they had begun to use the law of defining themselves as the cool kids inside the club and everybody else outside. We're inside, we're happy, you are the bad people outside, and we don't want anything to do with you. And so, of course, they're outraged when they see Jesus spending time with the outsiders. It makes no sense to them. It violates their sense of what is right and proper and what Israel is all about. This is a powerful notion, this idea of insiders and outsiders. It's especially important when we think about who we are as the Christian church. C.S. Lewis um, famously at a commencement speech, he called it the inner ring, told his group of students about the way the world works, and he warned them. And basically, the inner ring, it's well worth uh, reading. It's only a page or two. It's a fabulous uh, commencement speech. He says that in every nation, every community, every organization, every social group, every profession, every career, every company, every church, every human organization. There are insiders and there are outsiders. Whether formally or informally, <clears throat> there is the group who are the core, the beautiful people, the ones that have the prestige and the power who are in the know, the uh, opinion formers, the one, ones who other people look to to decide what to do. And either formally or informally, that group of people, whether they're formally recognized or not, define what that company, that group, that gathering, that church, that institution is all about, because they set the agenda. When I was a kid uh, in England, when I was 13, the in crowd were very distinct. They smoked cigarettes, which was the limit of wickedness when I was a child how innocent those days. And they stood after school at the top of the, uh, there was a path that led out of the school where the bicycles were. And that's where they smoked their cigarettes. And they had a distinctive um, tie. They had a double, we all had to wear ties back then. But they had a double Windsor. That's like a big elaborate knot, which makes the tie short, so above your belly button. And boys and girls who were part of the cool club and smoked cigarettes had these elaborate knots and these short ties, and you could spot them. And gosh, did I want to be one of them. That was the apex of social achievement when I was a kid. But this happens everywhere. It starts in school. I mean, you know, growing up and going to school, you know there are cliques, the insiders and the outside. The New York Times did a whole series on how there were insiders and outsiders in different professions. Fighter pilots, for example. The insider club is defined by somebody who's shut down a plane. You're not a real fighter pilot until you've shut down a plane. And the ones that have are the cool kids. If you're an Orthodox Jew, how many hours do you spend per day memorizing scripture? Memorizing scripture and the Talmud defines who are the cool kids. 
Christian ministers, they, uh, they looked at Christian ministers and they said, it's all about attendance, which is true. <laughs> I have learned that. It's a little more complicated in Hoboken. Uh, I discovered this when I first came here. There are three categories of ministers in Hoboken. There are the big cheeses, and those are pastors who have churches with church buildings attached to them. So church and a building plus a school, big cheese in Hoboken. And then the little cheeses are the pastors who've just got a church building. And then the cheese puffs are the pastors who have to rent gems like this. So <laughs> It was obvious to me where I was in the hierarchy. But it's everywhere. You know, in the city, if you are an accountant or a lawyer or uh, you're part of a bank, then becoming a partner used to be the highest possible achievement. When I was in the city, uh, the church was filled with wannabe actors. And the coolest thing you could have when you were uh, an actor was an uh, equity card. So there were the, one, the aspiring actors who had equity cards and the ones that didn't. Of course, if you're trying to be an actor, there is a long, tall, slippery pole of fame and success with increasingly rarefied inner circles that you have to rise through. If you're a socialite, are you on the A-list? Do you get into the best nightclubs? Are you invited to the fundraisers? Do you go to openings of new restaurants? And if you're not on that list, you're an outsider. You're socially dead. When I first came to the city, uh, Mike Myers uh, was talking about his experience of this in, in showbiz and uh, being a performer himself. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, in the 70s and 80s, Studio 54 was the cool kids club. And went through a few iterations, but just to get in the door was a big deal. They had these bouncers and the elaborate rules and credentials you needed just to get past the bouncers was a big deal. Because it's only a small club. But once you get in, that wasn't enough. To make things more exclusive, there were booths around the back. And you had to be invited to sit in a booth. And then you had a table, and you were the real cool kids. But then my buyer said it got even more ridiculous than that. That became blasé. They started inviting people in Studio 54 to go down in the basement. That was like the inner circle, the inner ring. And he said down there he would see these elaborately dressed men and women, not talking to each other, sitting among bottles and uh, supplies, just sitting, not talking, with a delicious knowledge that nobody upstairs listening to the music and dancing could join them. And that was the inner circle of the inner circle of the inner circle. Madness, right? The whole point of C.S. Lewis's uh, commencement address was these inner circles are everywhere. And when you go out in the world, you will meet them in your business, in your neighborhoods, in your social reactions. And they can be good. Sometimes you need to get together with like-minded people who have the skills to get stuff done. You need a certain amount of size to be efficient. You need perhaps to be, uh, keep certain things confidential. But when your only goal is to be an insider, that's when it corrupts you. When you are offered a part by a producer as an actor and you are asked to do things that you wouldn't normally do to get that part, 
when you're a lawyer or a banker or an accountant and to keep a client, you ask to bend rules or ignore certain practices or overlook certain things. If you're a sad student like myself and you want to be loved, you have to start smoking those cigarettes. Inner circles create this dynamic of inclusion and exclusion, us and them, and it can torment us, make us do things that we would not do normally. And that's Jesus' point here. The notion of insider, clean, holy, following all these laws, and outsider had become destructive, mainly in Jesus' time for the insiders. By rejecting the world, by rejecting everybody outside their little circle, they were defeating the purpose for which God had created Israel. Jesus came to change that. Jesus came to blow out that inner circle, blow it out beyond Israel, blow it out into the entire world, invite everyone in, because when he's around, everybody's a sinner. Compared to him and God, everyone is unclean. Everyone is lost. Everyone is an outsider. Look what he says. Now John's disciples, the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot as long as they have him with them. The whole point of all these rules was to meet God. The whole point for the Pharisees of everything they did was to be right with God, in relationship with God. And here he was, right in front of them, and they couldn't see him. These rules had blinded them. This us-them dichotomy meant that they could not see their own situation and the situation of the people around them. Everyone needs to be healed. Them, the insiders, and the outsiders. Because everyone is invited to the feast. Through Jesus, everybody is welcomed in. Everyone is offered that relationship. You know, Paul tells us that the relationship of Christ and his church is like that of a man and a woman in a wedlock, in a wedding. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. Both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into wineskins. Jesus tells us that this, this image of wine is uh, really all about the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people, the old Israel, the rules and regulations, the old people of God are no longer enough to hold that spirit. That spirit is on the move and is going to burst out. You need a new kind of people, a new definition of people for this new community, 
this new church, this new kingdom, this new group of God's people. So let me tell you a final story, and then we'll be done. Um, some of you have heard this one, but it made a big impact on me. When uh, I became a Christian, I got all excited, and uh, became a Christian in America, and I went back to England. And I actually went, um, right before I came back to uh, seminary, I went to a religious community in France called Teze, fabulous place. It's a group, started with a group of Protestant monks and has grown into this huge community. Tens of thousands of people from all over the world go there and have amazing music. It's like a Christian Woodstock with Christians from everywhere, although relatively few Americans for some reason. So I'm there with a group from college and uh, we're camping out and it's fabulous, the sun is shining. And there were, there were a few Americans and one of them, uh, a woman, she was interested in the fact that I was going back to America to go to seminary. And she said, if you're ever in Arizona, come stop by. And I didn't think much of it. We barely talked. And I wrote down her number. Well, anyway, it turned out that I did come back to America. And I was part of a group that went over to California to do an internship. And to go to California, you go through Arizona, right? I've got a friend in Arizona. Why don't we call her up and see if we can stay? So that's what we did. We showed up. Can't remember which town it is. It's the, the town that's got a big mountain with a, a gondola that goes up to the top. You probably know better than I am which one that is. So we show up, and it's this suburban development. We pull into her drive, and there she is. She comes out of the door. And, um, but she looked really strained and odd. It was not a happy welcome. Something was going on. I didn't know what. Her father came out. And with odd vigor, offered me a beer. I mean, I love beer, thank you, but it, there was an oddness to it. It was just way too soon and way too vigorous. And it was something was going on. And she didn't say anything. And she basically didn't say anything. We talked to her parents, and yeah, we can stay, and that's great. And they showed us the room. And she was clearly agitated, and she wanted to get out of there. So she invited us to a party, all right? In America, it's among the natives, see what they do, it sounded great. So we go to this party out on the edge of town, this isolated house. And I knew something was up at this party. It just, it was on the edge of town, and the people did not make any sense. There were old people, there were young people, there were obviously biker types with their tattoos, and guys in suits looked like bankers women with pearls and dyed hair and, and women who are like hippies and just, who are these people? And we go up to the, to the door. We, we, went, we drove up, parked, and we went into the door. And the first person we met, this tattooed guy, he said, what do you want to drink? And of course, I wanted a cold beer. It was Arizona. It was hot. But there was a weird vibe. I just knew there was something up. So I said, I'll just have a glass of water, whatever. Thank God I said that. Turned out that this woman, since I had met her, had gone back home and become an alcoholic. And her dad and her parents were furious with her. She dropped out of college. Her life fell apart. She would had to move back home. She was, from their perspective, a disaster as a daughter. And that's why they were so weird about alcohol. But here's the point. That group of people at that party had only one thing in common, alcohol. They were all alcoholics. And it meant 
that it was by far the most diverse group of people that I've ever seen. Black and white, old and young, tattooed and done up to the nines. Every age group, single, married, they were all over the shop. They had nothing in common socially except this one element, alcoholism. And it brought them together. You know, in AA, you pull your heart out. You confess and you repent. You ask for a greater power to transform you. You ask for people to pray for you and keep you accountable. You call them up when you're tempted. It is, in my opinion, exactly what the church can and should be. Not the good people all tarted up on Sunday looking their best, but sinners, lost people, troubled people, people whose lives are not working out, people who are ill, people who are suffering, people whose relationships are broken, people who are in trouble, all united by the need for God, for the doctor, for the one who can heal and redeem and restore. And that is what a real church should look like. Now, I don't want to beat up on this church. I love this church. We are together a church. But I have heard from people who have visited our church, some pastors, that coming to this church is sometimes like going to a Thanksgiving party thrown by somebody else's family. Everybody's happy. Everybody is welcoming and smiling. But visitors can sometimes feel like an outsider, like it's some other person's party. Why? Because even though we don't recognize it, there is an element in every social group of insider and outsider. If you know people, it's just easier to talk to them. You can share stories and memories. You've been through things together. My point is, and I think this is what Jesus is showing us in this uh, story, Jesus did not come to find the together people, the inside crowd. He came to find the lost. He came to find those who are not completely together, who perhaps are antisocial or troubled or difficult. And that is what we should aspire to be. Now, this is, I'm, a, I'm a hypocrite in this. I'm just as likely as anybody to have the easy conversation rather than the hard conversation. But I think Jesus here is calling us to something higher. That we should be willing to go out of our way to welcome people who are different from us. People that we don't expect. People who don't share exactly the same kind of lifestyle and assumptions that we have. We should go outside. We should be uncomfortable. Because, and this is the final point, what did Jesus do? How is it that he could invite everybody in? Because he was going to be cast out. What happened to Jesus on the cross? He was taken out of Israel, out of uh, Jerusalem, where the trash was burnt and put on a cross and killed. The ultimate outcast and outsider. He did that so that we could be included. He took our place outside so that we would be insiders of the ultimate ring, the ultimate family, the family of God. 
And if you believe that, if you see Jesus dying for you on the cross, an outsider so that you can be an insider, that should change your heart to everyone. First, no one is better than you. There is no one more exclusive than you as a child of God, beloved and included by the creator of the universe. There is no tighter, more important, more central core than that. We should not ever be ashamed in this world to be Christians. But simultaneously, we're only here because God, through Jesus, came to find us, brought us in. And therefore, we should never look down on anybody else. We are not better than anybody else. We just are saved. That's all. A group of people who believe that, deep down in their heart, who live that out, would become the most inclusive, diverse community in the world, which is what Jesus was all about. With Jesus, the walls are blown out. Everyone is invited. Everyone is an insider. Everybody is loved. So much so that Jesus gives himself completely. That's what the church is all about. That's why Jesus came. Let's pray.